In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hello and welcome to two special episodes of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. I've interviewed a number of judges from different jurisdictions at various levels of the Florida and federal court system, as well as other types of courts. I myself am an administrative law judge with the Division of Administrative Hearings, often referred to as DOA. As you may remember from our interview with Judge Meg Kerr, DOA houses the workers' compensation judges, but it also is responsible for adjudicating agency administrative disputes. In fact, DOA judges, also known as ALJs, have been adjudicating disputes in Florida for almost 50 years. DOA serves the people and businesses of Florida by providing all state agencies with impartial and efficient services to resolve disputes involving all types of governmental decisions. These disputes can involve complex factual and legal issues where the ALJ entertains motions, makes evidentiary rulings, serves as the fact finder, and then makes a detailed written recommendation to the agency or a final decision with an explanation regarding that decision. These cases include challenges to agency rules, child support enforcement, Baker Acts, professional licensing disputes, state discrimination cases, and bid disputes. Many of these cases involve pro se individuals representing themselves or their business. All of the cases involve the same rules of evidence and litigation practice found in county or circuit court. The only thing missing is a jury. DOA also contracts with cities and counties, regional planning councils, water management districts, school districts, and other local governments conducting due process hearings and appeals. For example, a local government may use an ALJ to conduct hearings involving land use or zoning issues, alleged violations of local human rights ordinances or code violations, and discipline and termination of collective bargaining employees. In this special episode, I have the honor of introducing our listeners to some of my sisters on the bench. These ALJs come from a diverse background and experiences, but all share a commitment to public service and a dedication to provide fair and impartial decisions. I hope you enjoy this administrative law edition of Never Contemplated. In this episode of Never Contemplated, you will hear from two of the state of Florida's environmental law gurus, Judge Francine Folks and Judge Kathy Sellers. Although these ALJs come from different backgrounds, they share a love of nature, a comprehensive understanding of science, and an ability to apply the law to complicated facts affecting Florida's resources. In this podcast, you'll learn about rulemaking and rule challenges from the jurists who have literally written the book on Administrative Procedures Act and agency rule adoption. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording this episode with Judge Folks and Sellers. Judge Francine Folks joined DOA in 2017. She obtained her undergraduate degree and her law degree from University of Miami. Welcome, Judge Folks, and thanks for being on Never Contemplated. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. 
I want to thank you again for being here. And then also just start from the beginning of the story of Judge Folks. I know you're originally from Jamaica. What was it like growing up in what I consider a vac- vacation destination, but what you considered home? Vacation destination. Okay. That would be the north coast of Jamaica. I um, lived all over, but I went to um, school, high school, and actually started university in Kingston, which is the main city. And it's not really a vacation destination. It's it's just like any other city, lots of high rises, and um, that's also the seat of government. But, you know, I love Jamaica. And growing up in Jamaica, I, I would say that my childhood was a little um, traditional, my parents were very strict. Uh, my mom is Roman Catholic. I went to Roman Catholic schools. And so um, it was interesting to, to move to come to America when we did. I was already 20 when my family decided to migrate. Wow. So I was already in the university. I actually had already started university at the University of the West Indies. So how did your family end up in Florida? Did you come to Florida? Yes. Um, and that's a, that's an interesting story. But the bottom line is my um, my mother did not want to go anywhere where there was snow. So when we had the opportunity to migrate, um, my my father's relatives lived in New York City. But my mother um, insisted that we move to Florida, which was fine, because by then, um, when we were looking at colleges and universities, uh, the ones in Florida were best suited to what I was um, doing and at that time. Were, what were you doing? Uh, you had already started college in Jamaica. Was there any discussion about you staying in Jamaica? I wanted to stay. <laughs> but um, my family could not afford that. <laughs> my father's my father's words were, if you're going to go to college, we're all going to go to college in the same place. I can't afford to pay for people to be in different countries. I have a younger sister who also was about to enter college. So those were his thoughts at the time. Well, I'm sure your mom didn't want to let you go either at that at that time. Uh, probably not. <laughs> so you ended up moving to Florida and your family was with you. Where what were your what were you doing? Where were you going to school? Um, well, actually, I had started. I had started doing marine zoology. That was going to be my major um, in Jamaica. And so when I uh, when we uh, migrated, and um, I looked into University of Miami and other colleges that did the marine biology or marine zoology type programs, and I chose University of Miami, and that's where I ended up. Um, so my progress was supposed to be get an undergrad degree in marine biology and go on to be a research scientist and travel the oceans scuba diving. That was my dream. <laughs> so your parent, nobody in your family was an attorney in Jamaica. Oh yes, they're all attorneys. Oh, they're all attorneys. <laughs> that's well, an let's exa- talk about that's that. That's an exaggeration, <laughs> I should say. A lot of my family, a lot of my cousins are attorneys. Um, there is in the English system. Because in Jamaica, the law is based on the English system. A lot of my cousins went to um, the the University of the West Indies, where you can get a Bachelor of Laws. And again, in the English system, you then go on to law school, where you then pract- you then learn either to be a barrister or a solicitor. And the, the West Indian law school is called the Norman Manley Law School, after one of the prime ministers of Jamaica. And um, that's where most a lot of my cousins went. 
Um, some of them migrated, some of my family migrated to Canada. And so some of my cousins also became lawyers in Canada, which again is an English-based system. So do the Jamaican barristers wear the wigs? Yes, you wear the wigs and the robes, the powder wigs, and you say, yes, my lord, no, my lord, or yes, my lady, no, my lady. For example, ju judges would be called, or as female judges would be called, my lady, yes, my lady, no, no, my lady as opposed to your honor. <laughs> I can imagine them people curtsying to us. <laughs> no, well, they don't curtsy, uh, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's very formal. <laughs> it is it is more formal than than our American courtrooms. Well, your so it seems like you have uh, the law runs kind of in your family. What uh, motivated you or created the passion to be a marine biologist? Well, that was my path from uh, in high school. Um, I did. I excelled in the sciences. Um, I I was focused on zoology and marine zoology, and so that was my path. Uh, in the in the university system, there you don't do a broad range of subjects across the board, and so I was in the College of Sciences, and that was my path. When I came to University of Miami, it surprised me that I had to do languages and humanities and social studies and things like that in order to get your degree it was like degree requirements. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. But, you know, then um, surprisingly, that's kind of where, what led me to the law, doing a more wide range of subjects in undergraduate here at the University of Miami than would have been available in Jamaica. So the general requirements something in, in taking those general requirements uh, led you to want to go to law school as well. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, in my senior year, uh, which is a year where you kind of just kick around and figure out what to do, because I had completed all the degree requirements, I actually have a double major, marine sciences and biology. So I'd completed the degree requirements for the two majors. Um, the uh, professor who taught ocean and coastal law at the University of Miami School of Law came and taught an undergraduate version of the class. And I took it as an elective and I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is fascinating. And so in my mind, I was thinking, well, here's an alternative um, in case I don't <laughs> make it, because it's it's very competitive to get into the Rosian Steele School of Marine Science down in um, at the University of Miami. If you want to get in to do your master's and your PhD, which was my intention, but um, so I was like, oh, this is an alternative. I can, this is possibility. Um, so when I did, when I graduated, I applied to both. I applied to Rosenstiel and I applied um, to law schools, but only a few law schools since it was more of a secondary. I applied to UM and, I, and at the time, Nova Southeastern was just beginning. This long time ago was just beginning to be, you know, um, a law school that was prevalent and looked at, and so, and it was also close to where my parents lived. <laughs> so that, so my dad was very interested in that. So you had a decision to make of whether to take classes out in the water, in, <laughs> in <laughs> enjoying yourself, looking at fish and other life, or being in a classroom. Well. You had to do both. You had to do both. <laughs> well, in law school, you don't get to swim around. So. Well, that's true. But, you know, it, it, there came a point when um, there was a decision to be made. 
And I think, and, and I always, it's, it's half monetary and half, okay, that might be interesting. That might be more lucrative. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, I got into Rosenstiel. I got into University of Miami and I got into Nova. And so the question was, okay, the decision has to be made now. Well, University of Miami called me and said, we'll offer you a full tuition scholarship for law school. And so, you know, my parents were like, okay, that's it. So the decision was made. Yes. <laughs> well, you go through law school. Did you clerk or did you uh, focus in any area in law school? Well, interestingly enough, and I tell students that are external now at, at uh, the division and um, that unlike some of them, and unlike most folks who go into law school, I knew I wanted to do environmental law or ocean and coastal law, something in that realm. Um, so I was in, I, I took, anytime I had the opportunity, especially after first year, to take electives, I took environmental law, I took the ocean and coastal law, I took admiralty, I took all this, you know, um, regular environmental law, all the federal statutory um, uh, information. Um, and then, interestingly enough, I managed to get one of the places I clerked during the, I think it was the summer of between 2L and 3L, I clerked in the Keys, in Key West. I actually clerked for the circuit court, supervised by one of the circuit court judges, but I was in Key West. So that was fun. I bet. Um, well, did you end, where Where did you end up after law school? Well, after law school, um, it was kind of interesting. It's It can be a long story, but I was, one of the things that I was advised to do is to go and um, interview at the, what's called the Southeastern, at the time it was called, I think, the Southeastern Minority Job Fair in Atlanta. I don't know if it still occurs. Um, and when I, when I went to interview there, I met the uh, general counsel of the Department of Environmental Regulation at the time. It was called the ER at the time. For Florida. For Florida. And I was like, really? You have such a thing? Because I didn't know anything about the state government of Florida, per se, and all the agencies. And he actually was only interviewing for clerks for the next summer. But we had uh, uh, we happened to have a, a blank spot in both our schedules at the same time. And so I sat down and chat with him. And, he ex and I said, that sounds very interesting. That would be, you know, and I would be in Florida because I, I was uh, some of my interviews was for places like Chevron in Houston and some other places. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to. First of all, I'm taking the Florida bar. And second of all, I don't know if I want to have to take another bar and go and work somewhere else in the country. And then I would be further away from my parents, which is which was a factor for me. And um, so he explained to me how state government works and how the legislature works. He's like, next spring, this was in the fall of 1988. He's like, next spring, I'm going to ask for a position from the legislature. And if it, if I get it in the budget, then I'll have an entry-level, full-time entry-level attorney position in my enforcement section. And, you know, you can apply for it. And then I did. <laughs> and so in the fall of 1989, I began working at... Uh, then DER. And that eventually became uh, DEP, which is the 
Department of Environmental Protection. Environmental Protection. We we said earlier today that we are full of acronyms over at DOA. Um, And so you started as an entry-level attorney at the department. uh, We'll call it the department. Yes. And you eventually become deputy general counsel there. Yes, 26 Uh, years later. So tell us a little bit about what it was like to be pretty much in, you were at DOT for two years, I think. Yes, in the the early 90s. But then you went back to DEP. Tell us what it was like to be in the same department for so long and how you moved up through the ranks there. Well, what I did, um, I loved the subject matter, loved the people I work with. I frankly, even though we're headquartered in Tallahassee and all the lawyers are in Tallahassee, you work outside of Tallahassee. So I traveled a lot all over Florida and I represented more of the southern geographic part. Um, We had the DEP had offices in West Palm Beach and Fort Myers. And that's where most of my work was sometimes in Orlando. Um, But so I started out as an enforcement attorney, which means I brought cases against polluters in circuit court and at DOA. Um, I even did federal court, which was fascinating. Um, Then after that, I decided to become what we called a permitting attorney, which means I helped with um, process, with overviewing and giving advice on the processing of permit applications, and then went to DOA if there was a denial of a permit or if there was a third party challenge to a permit um, to represent the agency at DOA. and then um, after that got to be, um, I, I got kind of burnt out after after a while. And I said, okay, I want to do something different now. And this is, by now, this is 2000s, um, maybe 2000. So they've been there over yeah, 10 years. Yeah, I've been there over 10 years. And so I moved into what's called rulemaking and programming and um, helped to actually uh, work with EPA when the state of Florida got what we call the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System program here in Florida. What's Under, the acronym for that? It's <laughs> NPDES, for those who want to know. And it's the program under the Clean Water Act where um, for discharges to waters of the state where you help to make sure there's no pollution. And of course, that's what we are about in Florida. I mean, gee. <laughs> so, so I did that for a while. And then I went back into doing DOA work, quote unquote, another acronym. And the one of the ways that I moved up and around was um, because of because by that time I had a lot of litigation experience. And the the um, person who writes the final orders for the agency, as you know, us DOA judges, we hold the hearings and we wrote, we write back to the agency our recommendation as to what to do. And then the agency writes a final order and, deci- and decides what to do, whether to issue the permit or deny the permit or whatever um, action the agency has taken. So I, um, for just before I became a judge for about, since 2007 to 2017, I um, wrote the final orders for the agency, and which means I reviewed the the record and I reviewed the recommended orders of the of the administrative law judges at DOA, and then wrote the final order for the agency head to sign. And then I would take it, and and this was the most 
gratifying part for me, I would do appellate work. So then I would defend those final orders on a, if they were taken on appeal. So by the time you became a DOA judge, an administrative judge, you had been practicing in front of DOA or doing the final orders for almost 25 years. Yes. Yes. And we're grateful to have you and your expertise at the court, of course. But you you spoke before about rulemaking and how you you switched to that. I know that you wrote the chapter <laughs> of <laughs> in the uh, Florida Administrative Practice Manual about rulemaking and rule adoption. Can you, for our listeners that don't practice administrative law or don't aren't involved in government or agencies, tell us how that rule process works. Well, um, if you can, yeah. <laughs> I know you wrote said, a whole chapter about I it. Say, I know read you the chapter. About it. Well, let me promote, and, and I love promoting Florida bar stuff too, but especially the Florida, this um, Florida Administrative Practice Manual, the blue book. It's the gospel, basically, for those who practice administrative law here in the state of Florida. If you work at a state agency um, as a lawyer, or if you practice in front of a state agency or in front of DOA, you need to get that. Florida Administrative Practice Manual. And many years ago, I don't remember how many now, I was approached by um, then ALJ, Kent Weatherall, and the and the then chair of the administrative law section of the Florida Bar to do a revamp of that chapter because it had not been updated in a few years. Lots of changes have been made by the made by the Florida legislature to the process of rulemaking for agencies here in Florida. And the chapter was very much outdated. And the previous author, I think, didn't want to do it or had had retired, I don't remember. Um, And so I actually spent, and you can get CLE hours for for writing. So I, I got, I think, 45 CLE hours that year for the research and the update. Um, It took me about a month to do, and I did almost nothing else. Good thing I didn't have any final orders pending at the time. I was at DEP and I updated it. And then since then I have, uh, I think that may have been the eighth or ninth edition. It's now in its 13th. And so every year since then, I then update the rulemaking chapter. And rulemaking is, it's agencies um, promulgate rules to uh, implement how they enforce the statutes that our legislature passes to do all the various things that the the agencies do, like for DEP, how you regulate um, the environment and issue permits and um, get people to clean up pollution, et cetera. And so the process that agency has to go through involves a lot of, um, you have to write the rules, you have to hold workshops, you have to take comments from the public, um, you may have rule, legal challenges that end up in front of us at, um, at the Division of Administrative Hearings as rule challenges. Um, but eventually those rules get adopted by the agencies and the agencies enforce them as, as the way of making sure they implement the laws that the legislature has passed. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about something you mentioned before that you like to promote the Florida Bar Committees. I know that you are active in the administrative law section. Um, I think you may have been involved in writing articles for the government bar. Lawyer section, yes. yes. I don't know. um, And this is something that I, I tell our law students when we get externs at DOA. 
because number one, when you graduate, you get a free, I think you get at least one free or maybe three free. I don't remember what it is now. Memberships in the sections of the Florida Bar and they're substantive. So for example, uh, or they might be demographic. I, um, the environmental and land use law section, which is more substantive. I have always, I've been a member since I graduated from law school. And even though as a government attorney, you have to pay for most everything yourself. I mean, I saw it as an investment in my professional development. So, and, and it's not that much. For example, I think the current administrative law section dues might be $25 or $35 a year. And what do you so, get out of that? Well, as a member, as a lawyer member, you get, um, you get the information um, in the publications. Like, for example, I used to write for the government law section reporter where you do um, substantive articles, you do case law updates. I think most, every section does the same kind of thing. You might do spotlighting on legislation, especially during legislative session that's relevant to that substantive area. You might do member spotlights. You do CLEs that really it's it's volunteer. The members of the bar and the sections, they speak at CLEs and prepare written materials and do really hard work for free most of the time. Um, of course, membership pays for it, but then the Florida Bar runs it and stuff. So you don't have to, it's not the paid for or for profit. Um, and it's, and the people who volunteer to do that are really the experts in the field. And, and, and so I, you know, I promote that even if your agency doesn't pay for it, that membership, it's an investment in your own professional development. In bar, I, I love bar. I love I think you should be involved in the Florida Bar because it's it's what um, regulates your profession. And if you're on the outside as an attorney in a law firm or solo or whatever, and you're complaining, then you need to be involved in order to be at the table. And so currently I'm in my second round of being on a board certification committee. I'm on the state and federal government and administrative practice certification committee. Um, I was on it when it started, when this certification era started many years ago, back, I think, in 2007. And so um, and so I think it's just important to get involved in the very um, agency, if you want to call it, but the regulatory um, agency that that regulates your profession um, or else you won't see the changes you want to see and you won't see the faces at the table that you want to see. Well, when you're not. Uh, working or writing, uh, updating the manual or teaching CLEs or being on the Florida bar committees, what do you like to do in your free time? Um, that's a good, what, what free time? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, um, I'm, I'm very much, um, uh, involved with my church. Um, as most people probably are, uh, uh, here, especially here in Tallahassee. And I teach Sunday school from time to time sing from time to time. It, de it depends. Uh, COVID, I, I don't think I've actually been in the building in a couple of years. You know, you watch it live stream, but, but it's really, you know, that's mostly what my free time is uh, uh, composed of. Um, I actually, at the, at the moment, uh, caregiver for my mother. Um, and so that, you know, that takes up a lot of time. She lives with me. And uh, my my dad died probably 16 years ago now. And so um, that's kind of 
hit. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a, but, lot, a lot of people our age are, are being parents to our parents. Yes, and it's, that's and it's true. Hard. Yes. That's true. But when I travel for for Doha, um, and we're beginning, I'm beginning to do that again uh, to travel to various parts of the state for hearings. I love to, if I'm near the water, go snorkeling <laughs> and sightseeing. So, so where where are some good spots for snorkeling? Well, the Keys always, and it is off of Fort Lauderdale. Oh, and um. DEP was involved in um, helping with some artificial reef creation off of Fort Lauderdale and off of uh, Miami. And so those aren't good areas to go snorkeling. Well, we'll have to check that out. I know uh, we've been talking for a long time, but uh, before we go, if you had one piece of advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would you say to them? Um, Preparation, preparation, preparation. In, what's interesting about what we practice is you don't get a decision right away. And you're you're presenting your case, because it's like a bench trial. You're presenting your case only to the administrative law judge who has some expertise in the area that you are presenting. So it's not, you don't have to worry about performance, but you need to make sure you build your record, you present all the information, and that you write a good proposed order. Because, um, you know, we don't come back to the record and the information till maybe a few months later after the transcript is filed with the division. And so by the time we we get to writing our orders, it's it's been a few weeks or months since the actual administrative hearing, live hearing, and you've for- forgotten uh, people's performance, but you're reading the transcript, you're reading. In the case, I do environmental and land use cases. I've started doing other kinds. But folks who practice in that era know it's very document-driven. Yes. You know, you're talking thousands on land use, thousands of pages of information. And it's very difficult to do by Zoom. And yes, it that that too. But it's... You know, when you're writing, when the lawyer's writing a proposed order, don't just cite to the transcript after you've given me thousands of pages, you know, point out where in the documents I can also find this information. And and that takes a lot of preparation and a lot of detail-oriented work. And so that's what I would say, be prepared to be detail-oriented and to uh, make sure you build your record. Well, thank you, Judge folks, for being on the on the air today with us. Keep snorkeling and stay safe. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Judge Kathy Sellers joined DOA in 2011. She received her bachelor's in zoology and master's of education from University of Florida and her law degree from Florida State University. Welcome, Judge Sellers, and thank you for joining us on Never Contemplated. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I want to dive right in. I have known you for a number of years since I came to DOA, and anyone who knows you knows that you're an avid Gator fan. (laughs) So I wanted to know, are you from Florida, and what is your passion for for Gainesville? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, yes, I am from the state of Florida. Uh, I was born in Fernandina Beach and lived there on and off uh, over the course of my life. 
and but also lived overseas at some points and also other parts of the United States. Um, I went to the University of Florida, as you said, for my master's and uh, bachelor's degrees. And um, so, uh, I, you know, if you go to UF, you usually are a gator. <laughs> Well, um, you, I know that you lived in, uh, you moved around when you were young and that you lived in Africa and some other places around the world. Tell us a little bit about growing up internationally. Okay. Well, um, when I was in fifth grade, my, uh, my father took a job that, um, was located in Sierra Leone, West Africa. So uh, we moved over there and lived there for four years uh, it, out in the middle of the jungle, literally. Um, it was an amazing childhood, I will say. Uh, and um, we lived there for four years. And then uh, after that, we moved to South Africa. Uh, my father's job took him there. We lived in South Africa for two years. So between fifth grade and effectively 11th grade, um, I did live overseas. And I was homeschooled for part of that and um, was in a boarding school in South Africa. And and how do you think that that influenced your, your outlook on life of growing up in, you know, what basically your early education years uh, abroad? Well, I think... It, I think it had a profound effect. First of all, um, there is no way that you can live in that beautiful place without becoming incredibly interested in the environment uh, and the animals and plants that live there. So, and the geology. And so for all of those years that I lived there, I spent as much time as I possibly could outdoors learning as much as I could about the environment, the plants and animals and the like. The other thing that, um, I think it really gave me an appreciation for is um, how other people live in other parts of the world and quite frankly, how fortunate we are in many respects to have at least as many creature comforts as we do in this country. Um, the um, I lived in South Africa during apartheid. It was um, a very difficult and brutal, brutal time for the, um, for the native people. Uh, and um, it was a very eye-opening experience for me, uh, for sure. And um, I think that has definitely shaped my view of, you know, basically global social justice and environmental protection. I take it your your parents were not attorneys. Um, and did you have any attorneys in your family, or was it the influence of the social justice issues that made you want to become a lawyer? Honestly, no lawyers in my family. My father was a mining engineer. Um, I come from a family of science people. Um, and um, I became interested in environmental law when I was teaching high school. I taught for six years, uh, taught marine science, ecology, and basic biology at the high school level, and became very interested, particularly in when I taught ecology, in environmental law. So I um, went home one day and informed my husband that I wanted to go to law school. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that, but <laughs> tell I know that you now are teaching uh, administrative law at University of Florida, and uh, you also are very active in uh, producing and programming CLEs for attorneys to teach them that. 
how is teaching attorneys different from teaching high schoolers? Which one's harder? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, um, uh, you know, obviously with CLE, you're assuming that your audience has, you know, a certain level of knowledge and understanding before you go in. And so, um, and particularly for some of the more advanced courses that the administrative law section offers, you assume a baseline knowledge. And so you're in, you're going in loaded with content, ready to share as much as you can within that hour. Uh, teaching high school students obviously is significantly different than that. Um, you know, there are a lot of social issues that you have to deal with with kids that age. Uh, and a lot of it, quite frankly, is understanding things that will be relevant to them, that will basically stick with them, that they'll retain as they go forward. And I did find that a lot of my students were very interested in ecological and environmental issues. Um, I tailored my course when I taught that to current events in environmental you know, in the environment, endangered species and the like. And the students really, really seemed to enjoy it. I know I certainly enjoyed teaching them. We did field trips. We went to Bush Gardens. We, you know, went to the to the beach and, you know, collected things and put it in, put them in aquaria. And uh, so I really enjoyed the high school teaching experience a lot. Well, do you think that uh, teaching high schoolers has, has taught you patience uh, uh, that you can now use or use as an attorney or as your role as a judge? Yes, I do. Yeah. So you graduated from University of Florida with your teaching degree. You teach high school. Where'd you teach high school? I taught high school at my alma mater, Fernandina Beach High School. Uh, And then I taught in Plant City, Florida at Plant City High School for four years. In Tampa. Uh, right outside of Tampa. Right, right outside of Tampa. Um, and then you go back to law school and you come out and you have the big firm experience. You, Correct. Right. You joined Steel Hector and Davis. And I think we were talking about this before. We interviewed Patricia Seitz, who was a first female partner there. Did you know uh, Judge Seitz? And um, how was the big firm experience for you? Well, first, yes, I did know uh, now Judge Seitz mm-hmm. and then Judge Seitz. Uh, she was, uh, as you say, the first female partner in the firm. She was a wonderful mentor for the women in the firm. Uh, I began practicing with Steele Hector in 1998. And by then, there were a number of female lawyers, albeit not that many female partners at the time. Uh, Judge Seitz was incredibly supportive interested, accommodating, helpful, um, and just a role model for many of us, you know, who were young, young female attorneys who were, who were getting started in their practice. Um, so, uh, and, and quite frankly, I really enjoyed the big firm experience. I was with two large firms over the course of my 23 years in private practice. And, um, I really enjoyed, the big firm experience for a few reasons. First, uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, represent a number of sophisticated clients, um, business clients. And with me not having any business background going into or coming out of law school, because I studiously avoided everything I could with respect to business, and I had to take business associations. But learning about clients um, and their business needs and the need for certainty um, really, I think, helped me become a uh, sort of a more well-rounded uh, lawyer, um, gave me a broader understanding 
um, of competing interests that have to be balanced when you are, uh, you know, dealing with regulatory issues vis-a-vis, you know, a client who is willing to comply with regulations, you know, within reason uh, and the need for certainty so that you can basically just go forward, you know, and uh, develop your business plan out over a number of years and get your financing and the like. So uh, I found that to be um, uh, representing clients like that to be very challenging and very interesting. Um, For a while during my um, experience with Steel Hector and Davis, I also did a lot of legislative work as well. So that opened my eyes to the whole legislative process here in Florida. And I think things may have changed some since then, but uh, I think it definitely gave me an appreciation for, um, you know, sort of from soup to nuts, how all of this stuff worked. Well, you, uh, it sounds like you started off doing uh, a little bit of everything and that you, you eventually narrowed your your practice or specialized in administrative and governmental types of law. Are there any other kinds of law? Did you litigate? Did you, you know, who did, how, what kind of law did you practice okay. when you were in private practice? Well, I actually was hired um, at Steel, Steel Hector to be an associate in the environmental and land use section. So from the beginning of my career, I was, ta- you know, directed into environmental and land use. Um, however, uh, in Florida in particular, and it may very well be this way, I know it is certainly at the federal level, uh, if you do environmental law, you have to have a good, thorough understanding of administrative law as well. And so uh, over the course of my career with Steel Hector, um, I did a lot of environmental and land use, but I also got involved in other kinds of administrative law as well. So I branched out from dealing with the typical environmental regulatory agencies to dealing with some of the other regulatory agencies like the Department of Health, um, the Department of Transportation, uh, the Department of Business and Professional Regulation, just just as an example of a few. Well, you have... uh you had 23 years of administrative and regulatory experience with with the private firms before you joined DOA. You also have written, literally written the chapter on <laughs> the overview for the Florida Administrative Procedures Act um, uh, in the uh, the book of that that we all use for Florida administrative practice. Uh, you teach administrative law now in uh, at the University of Florida. And you have chaired the section of the administrative law section of the Florida Bar. Can you tell our listeners that don't practice administrative law or or maybe thinking about going into the practice a little bit about the APA and and, uh, just an overview of administrative law in Florida? Sure. So um, our Administrative Procedure Act um, is um, a, a very thorough detailed statute. It's sort it's of chapter 120. It for, is if chapter you want to 120. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and it really has uh, been amended over a number of years to add a lot more detail to it. It is effectively directing uh, agencies um, about the procedures that provide due process to the entities that are regulated by those particular agencies. Not all agencies are regulatory, but 
here in Florida, a good many of them are. I would say probably most of them are. And so this effectively is like the administrative analog, if you will, of the rules of civil procedure for civil court practice. Um, our statute is very detailed. On top of that, we have some uniform rules of procedure that sort of further flesh out the statute. But effectively, anyone who is involved with an agency, when the agency makes a decision that um, it's a term of art here, but determines their substantial interests, they are entitled, if there are facts in dispute between the agency and the entity whose um, substantial interests are being determined, you're entitled to have an independent trier of fact. Uh, to conduct a formal evidentiary hearing. And so, as you know, Judge Desai, that's a lot of what we do at DOA is we are these independent triers of fact. We, we, are, um, we comprise a central panel of judges who are not affiliated with any other agency. So there is an impartial fact finder involved. Uh, and that is a big part of what um, administrative law entails. I think one of the reasons that I have been attracted to it even though I have no political science background, is I do think it's very interesting sort of um, just, you know, the, the the issue of authority and power and, you know, sort of the process that's due for non-agency parties when a government agency makes a decision that affects them. Right. So so I think it's interesting that we you have these big policy issues that you hear about but what we see on uh, before us is how they actually affect small people and small businesses and corporations in Florida and the application of that. So I think that's interesting. I think that um, you think there's anything else that that makes it different from practicing other kinds of law? Well, quite frankly, um, you know, I came from a science background and even in law school, I felt like this was probably the closest thing to a natural science that uh, that I encountered. It's a fairly structured area of the law. Uh, and um, so I, I liked that aspect of it um, because there are, as you know, rules galore that have been adopted by agencies. So there's, uh, you know, you, ha you have a pretty detailed instruction manual, so to speak. Uh, you have case law layered on top of that. Uh, so I find that interesting. But I also... One of the things that I find very interesting without getting into any real detail about it are the party's interests that come in front of us. So many of these cases just have really interesting facts. And it's interesting to me to, um, you know, sort of get an understanding of those facts and see how it fits within the applicable law. And I um, know two cases are ever the same. No, that's true. Yeah. Uh, there, I mean, you may have similar cases and issues that you have uh, dealt with before that are familiar, but yes, everyone has their own independent um, opportunity in front of an independent tr uh, trier of fact uh, in front of us. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoy too. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. Your husband is on the board of governors of the Florida Bar. Uh, you yourself are actively involved in the administrative law section. You probably have given um, or been involved in dozens, if not hundreds, of CLEs um, and talks on administrative law and professionalism. Why is it important for attorneys to get involved 
with Florida bar committees and, and especially in promoting CLEs and the education of others? I think if you have the opportunity to do that, um, for me, I just enjoyed it. From the very beginning as a young lawyer, I liked uh, writing and uh, was encouraged by um, my supervising partner at Steel Hector to become involved in bar activities. So I just sort of quite grew up that way. Um, and I, I have found it very enriching. I certainly understand that particularly a lot of smaller firm lawyers may not have the time to do that. I was fortunate enough to have you know, the time and the support, quite frankly, of um, all of the lawyers that I ever worked with to be able to do that. Um, so it just for me, it's been more a matter of just kind of fulfilling an interest, um, sort of a hobby, if you will. <laughs> well, if someone was interested in teaching either as an adjunct or teaching or speaking at a, a CLE, do you have any pointers or tips for them? Well, first, with respect to speaking at CLEs, I happen to be still on the um, CLE committee of the administrative law section. Uh, and um, so I would encourage anyone out there listening to this, if you would like to speak on any kind of administrative law topic, please be, feel free to contact me or uh, Brittany Adams Long, <laughs> who's the other CLE chair for the administrative law section, and we will line you up. Uh, as far as um, with respect to um, just in other areas, if you're interested in getting involved in the bar, contact the, you know, the executive council or some of the officers of that particular um, section of the bar. Um, there is each section has an executive council. The sections are always looking for people who are interested in becoming involved. We're always looking for fresh blood uh, and enthusiasm. Uh, so you will be welcomed <laughs> and, 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 you know, <laughs> And brought into the fold if you uh, contact um, one of the sections and express your interest. As far as becoming an adjunct is concerned, um, I was fortunate enough to just sort of be in the right place at the right time when the University of Florida began its um, environmental certificate program. And at the time, they did not offer the Florida Administrative Law course. So um, my husband, who is a prominent administrative lawyer, was invited to create and teach the administrative law, Florida administrative law course at UF. And he declined, but offered me. <laughs> <laughs> so I said yes, because I'd been a high school teacher. So I've been doing it there for 20 years and actually created the course, um, all the materials and teach it every fall. I think that is a matter of contacting whatever law school you think you'd like to be an adjunct um, at and suggest to them some useful course that you think they ought to add to their curriculum. And I think you'd be pleasantly surprised at how receptive they are. <laughs> well, it sounds like you have a full plate when you're not working or teaching or uh, being involved in the bar. What do you like to do in your free time? Well, I really like outdoors. Um, I'm very interested in birding, so I do a lot of that. Um, I like to go out and get out into the countryside and see wildflowers and 
you know, just kind of walk around neat um, geologic features and stuff like that. So that those are sort of my hobbies outside. Um, of course, I read um, indoors <laughs> or sometimes outside. Um, between all my professional activities uh, and um, having a husband who works a lot too, currently I um, devote a lot of my time to professional related activities. Um, once I am no longer um, practicing law, um, I have a lot of interest in traveling. Well, um, I hope you get to travel again soon. Uh, I hope we all get to travel again soon. I know that you are very health conscious and that you are a cancer survivor. Um, tell us a little bit about your wellness plan for yourself and what you do and and how you got through that time. Okay. Well, um, I am an almost nine-year survivor of stage four ovarian cancer, so I am one of the incredibly lucky ones who is still around um, with that aggressive form of cancer, and I also have been fortunate enough to not to have any recurrences so far. Um, the one thing I think, or a thing that I can can offer to everyone listening to this is if you know that something is not right with your health, do not take no for an answer. Press for yourself. Be your own advocate. I went to several doctors, and in their defense, it never dawned on them that my symptoms could be indicative of ovarian cancer because I did not have the typical symptoms. I had rashes. I had a number of other things, but none of the typical ovarian cancer um, symptoms. And um, my ovarian cancer happened to just coincidentally be caught doing imaging for something else. And um, so it was a real surprise to me, obviously. And by the time they caught it, um, it was stage four. Um, And um, I did go to um, Shands at the University of Florida, where they have um, outstanding oncologists. And um, so I was very fortunate to get excellent medical treatment. Um, I was very privileged in that respect, and I greatly appreciated that. But again, I think my, um, yeah, I think one of the things that that whole experience taught me as in addition to paying attention and being your own advocate and pressing for answers, the other thing is just stop and enjoy the beautiful day, the sunlight, the butterfly going by, the flower in your yard, that kind of thing. You just need to to get out there and appreciate every second that you have on this earth. We have a beautiful planet. Um, You just need to take a deep breath and appreciate every moment you're on it. Well, thank you so much for for coming in today. I have one last question for you. And I know that you... um, We've talked a little bit about teaching, and but if you had a new attorney in your courtroom, what advice could you give him or her? Okay. Um, I think the most important thing that you can do is be prepared, really well-prepared, um, you know, knowing your case backwards and forwards. That's extremely helpful. The other thing that I think goes a long way with – probably most of us at DOA, is um, being professional and reasonable and accommodating to, you know, within the bounds of what you can do while representing your client. Um, the, the, um, the best experiences, and I find, quite frankly, sometimes the most helpful experiences are when the, the lawyers have gotten along on the front end and they've been able to resolve a number of issues before they even 
walk into the courtroom so that time is not wasted dealing with things um, that could have been taken care of before you even get into the courtroom. It makes it more difficult for your client. Uh, it makes it more difficult for yourself. Quite frankly, it makes it more difficult for the judge. Um, there are things that, uh, again, I think professionalism and preparation go a tremendously long way in, in, in um, you know, having a successful outcome. Well said. All right. Well, thank you again for coming. Go Gators. Go Gators. And stay safe. <laughs> thank thank you. you. I want to thank the sound engineer, Clay Shaw, and Katie Young and Rebecca Bandy from the Latimer Center of Professionalism for keeping us on the air. If you'd like more information on the ALJs interviewed in this episode, the Division of Administrative Hearings, or the Administrative and Environmental Sections of the Florida Bar, check out the links under this posting. I also want to encourage you to join us for the next season of Never Contemplated, where we expand our interviews from the judiciary to other female leaders in the legal community. Thanks again for listening and stay safe.